Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. We've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're going to be starting off, uh, as always, every week uh, with another great round of Coach's Corner uh, here in just a moment or two. And I've got two great professionals uh, on the panel tonight, Bill Abrams and Chuck Evans. Of course, been on the show many times uh, over the last uh, number of years since we've been doing the broadcast. So I, I know that they'll uh, bring their best as, as they normally do. And then a little bit later on, the broadcast is going to be joined by my very special guest, uh, uh, very well-known legendary golf announcer and known as The Voice, uh, Mr. Peter Kessler, is going to be joining me on the second half of the show, so very excited uh, all the way around tonight. Um, but let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening, unless otherwise stated, here on the blogtalkradio.com network from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 for those of you uh, on the East Coast. Best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive is the direct link, or you can just simply type golftalklive.com. Uh, up in the search key, and that will take you to the main page. And as I said, you can listen live there. Uh, but for some reason, if you're not able to tune in live, uh, just scroll down the page a little bit, and uh, you'll see the on-demand section. And all of the shows, including tonight's, uh, will be there in their recorded version uh, in their entirety. So you can scroll down and listen whenever it's convenient for you. So uh, if you can't join us live, make sure you just visit the on-demand section on that link, and you'll be able to listen uh, when it's convenient uh, for you. Uh, also, if you uh, want to tune in on a different social media plat- uh, platform, you can do so by going to tune, uh, iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, or TuneIn.com now, uh, and just under the podcast section, again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and that will take you there as well. Always love to hear from you. You're welcome to call in anytime during our live Thursday night broadcast from 6 to 8 Central. Uh, the number to call is area code 646-716-4667, uh, or you can email any questions or comments to me personally to ted.golftalklive.com at gmail.com is my email. And for those of you in the golf profession, you don't necessarily have to be a teacher pro or a coach. Uh, maybe you've got an interesting product or service that you're offering uh, in the golf industry, or maybe you've written a great book that you want to come on and share. Uh, again, you can reach out to me. Uh, my email is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Always update the show, of course, on uh, other social media platforms, Facebook, uh, under my personal page. Uh, also under Golf Talk Live blog is the link uh, on Facebook for the homepage for this uh, uh, program. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck, CEO, CEO in capital letters, and also uh, on LinkedIn.com uh, under my personal name, uh, Ted Odorico, and it's O-D-O-R-I-C-O. And you can uh, follow and, and get some updates on the show uh, through LinkedIn as well. Um, as I said, we've got a great show tonight. Uh, we're going to start things off with Coach's Corner panel. Uh, and let me just introduce the guys, and then I'll bring them on, and we'll, we'll start our, our discussion for tonight. Uh, Bill Abrams, of course, uh, he's been on many, many times before. Uh, he's a PGA professional and owner and director of instruction uh, for Golf Solutions Academy up in Balmoral Woods in Creek, Illinois. 
Uh, also, uh, Golf Channel Academy with David Impastato in Heron Bay, uh, Coral Springs, Florida. You'll find him in the winter months down there. Uh, also on the panel, Chuck Evans, uh, Golf Magazine's top 100 teacher, uh, also a Golf Digest top teacher in America, as well as a top 50 growth of the game teacher, uh, and also the owner of Chuck Evans Golf. He's also now uh, here coming due uh, any, any day now. He's going to be the director of instruction. Uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump from where I am over at Emerald Bay Golf Club down in uh, beautiful Destin, Florida. Uh, he's going to be taking the position there uh, in just, I believe, a few short weeks. Um, but anyways, we're excited to have both of them on the show tonight. So, uh, Bill and Chuck, uh, welcome to uh, Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Uh, thanks for having us. Hey, Teddy. Thanks for having us so much. All right. Not a problem, guys. Uh, always uh, glad to have you on on the show. Um, as I mentioned to you both off air, uh, given that uh, we're on the cusp, if you will, of the Masters tournament, we're under uh, the just finished up the the first round, if you will, the Thursday night uh, Thursday round, excuse me, of the 2018 Masters tournament. I thought that we would throw some questions in there uh, that sort of evolve around the Masters or certainly major tournaments in general. And uh, if you don't mind, Bill, I'm going to start with you, and then Chuck, I'm going to. Uh, get you to, to chime in as well, and then I'll, I'll flip the uh, the roles uh, as we go along through the questions. Um, the first one I, I want to ask you, Bill, is this. Um, the question for most uh, professionals uh, are asking themselves is, how do I peak uh, for the Masters? What's the right and wrong way to prepare for the first major of the year, or is there one? Um, what are your thoughts there? So if I'm getting ready for the first major of the year, obviously the Masters tournament, um, is there a right or wrong way to prepare for the first major of the year? It's really strange because over the years we've, uh, we've always heard, I'm going to try to peak for this, or I'm going to try to peak for that. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. You have to really, I feel, have your, your game, your fundamentals, your setup, and, and most of all your mental game. That's the biggest part of it. Um, you know, our physical is our physical. We can, you know, we've seen some great players win with their, their B minus game and their C plus game, but they have to be A plus mentally. And I think that's what separates the four majors, um, especially the different type of venues that they have is mentally you have to be prepared. Nicholas would always say, you know, early on in a, uh, with the press conferences and early in somebody would be complaining about something. He said, don't have to worry about him. He's not going to be any type of uh, competition for me because they'd be complaining about things. I think the biggest thing is to be able to embrace the pressure and the opportunity to go out and play on uh, the grandest stage. And I think that really, is, as far as peaking goes, it's as much mental as physical. And we've seen that where players come in and they're not playing so well, and all of a sudden they find it. You know, it's, it's something I think yeah. it's peaking is a little bit of an idea that's, uh, I don't want to say, generated but uh i really feel the you know the routine's got to be solid and you got to be very comfortable with what you're bringing to the table i think that's the way we we really peak for an event right well said bill you know and the, and the opposite true is true i think as well bill is i think we a lot of times we'll see a player coming in and they're hitting their irons are hot and they're hitting good drives but mentally they're not able to handle the events or the tournament at hand and quite often we'll see players that start off the, the first couple of rounds hitting some phenomenal shots and, and ta- even taking the lead in some cases, and then all of a sudden it's like, where did their game go? Uh, and that's where yeah. the mental side, as you pointed out, uh, comes in, and they're just not able to, to mentally sustain it for, for the four rounds. 
Um, Chuck, what about you? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, to hit that peak for for the Masters, being the first tournament, is there a right or wrong way? Uh, what are your thoughts? They generally fall on, in line well, with Bill, or or do you have some other uh, well, I, I, well, ideas? I think I think it depends. I think it depends on the player and how many times they've been there. You know, I mean, Nichols will tell you that for every major, he went out the week before the major and he played the golf course every day, just like he would in a tournament round. He didn't hit, you know, five or six different approach shots or five or six tee shots. He did one tee shot, one approach shot, and do it like he would in a tournament. Uh, some players like to take off the week before. Some players like to play the week before. But if I'm a if I'm a rookie and I haven't been there before, I'm going and I'm going to I'm going to find Mr. Nicholas. I'm going to find somebody that that knows this golf course, and I'm going to get as much information as I can, and that's going down in my yardage yeah. book and my green chart, you know, uh, and I'm going to play practice rounds or, or try to play practice rounds to the players that have been there, and if I can get a practice round that a player right. that's been there and won, then that's what I'm going to do. But as far as peaking, I, I think that I think some players that say you know you got to peak at the right moment. Well. When is that right moment? And I, and I think it's different for every player. Uh, some players thrive yep. on the majors. I mean, you know, Nicholas' whole focus during his career was majors. And so, you know, he didn't play, you know, 22, 24 events a year. He, you know, he played a handful of events plus all the majors uh, because he didn't want to get burned out. So that's, and again, it, it's different mindset, different players depending on whether you've been there before or you've never set foot on the property. So I, I think it's different depending on the yep. player. Right. Well well said, right. uh, Chuck. I agree. Um, and, 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 Chuck, actually, you, you made a very interesting point, uh, which actually leads into our next question. Uh, so take a deep breath, Chuck, and, and I'm going to start with you this time, and then, Bill, I'm going to let you to chime in as well. Um, and that is really to compete the week before uh, the major or not to compete. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Uh, and what are your thoughts there? I mean, some players, as you just pointed out, don't like to play uh, the week before, and some do. Uh, again, I guess a lot of it depends on the player, but what are your thoughts there? Is there, is there advantages and are there disadvantages? Well, I, I, I think it goes both ways. Once again, uh, players that don't like to play the week before that have had success there, that works for them. Players that have had success there and played the week before, like Phil always likes to play the week before. So it's worked to his advantage. Um, you know, Bubba right. played, has played well last year. Uh, I, I don't know where he's standing on the leaderboard, but, you know, uh, he's won twice this year. So you'd think he'd coming in, he had the hot hand. But, again, that's not always the case. Uh, it's, like some, it's like a player goes out and shoots 58 or 59 one day. They don't come back the next day and shoot 60. You know, but you had a hot hand, so you took advantage of it. Right. Right, exactly. Well said. Um, Bill, what about your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, what are your uh, thoughts on, on some of the advantages and disadvantages of playing the week before a major tournament? You know, I, I really think it, it really means a lot, the state of the game with the player, much like, uh, much like uh, Chuck was saying you know, how they, they feel. There's really no perfect box, but there's a perfect box for the individual. And to try to find what works best for them is, is something that's important. Somebody might not be in form. We'll take Ian Poulter, for example. Last week, 
he had a he was in at the match play. He decided at the last minute to play and ends up winning and making it. So I think there's you know there's there's right. certain scenarios and certain circumstances that you have to take from year to year and time to time. I mean Tiger would always when he was playing his best wouldn't play the week before and come out and just be absolutely prepared and right. you know there's always that fear. people talk about getting burned out or this or that and I think burned out is something mentally when you're when your mind is fresh and you know what your goal is and you know what you want to accomplish burned out doesn't doesn't fall in no matter how many hours you you, you take because your body will be able to handle it the, the thing is is once you start to doubt and once you start to get tired that's where that week before could end up being a little bit of a, a little bit of an issue yeah, and, and and you both make some some excellent points, and and I think, you know, again, obviously it depends on the individual player. Some players, um, you know, need to have that that competitive juice flowing, uh, you know, the week before. Others may travel back to maybe a home course uh, or a practice course that they they like to to work out some of the kinks and the bugs, if you will, uh, before they they uh, you know fly in or drive to to Augusta. So, I mean, I think it works either way. And, and again, as Chuck, as you pointed out, if a player um, that has done well, say, at Augusta National, who plays the week before, then he's going to keep that pattern. And somebody that has the opposite effect, you know, they're not going to jinx things, if you will. And, and uh, Tiger and, and Phil are sort of opposite, uh, polar opposites when it came to that. Tiger, you know, a lot of times would play, uh, he might play some golf the week before, but he's not necessarily playing competitively. So, um, where Phil, you know, always wanted to make sure he was was doing something and, and grinding it out right up to the last moment. So uh, again, it really depends on the players. But uh, some great thoughts and points, guys. Thanks. Um, yeah, and, and you know, most so Bill, of those players gonna, are really, again, uh, and most most of those players, Ted, are really superstitious as well. So mm-hmm. you know, oh, they, yeah. they will, you know, they'll carry they'll carry things in their bag that they carried when they won an event. They'll use the same marker. They'll oh. you know. So if you're superstitious, especially in a major, about certain things, you're not going to break that mold, you know. If it's proven successful, you stay with it no matter what it is. Well, and and, and to take it a step further, there's players that um, have had putters over the years that have served them well time in and time out, and they will actually, even if they're using new equipment, sometimes will bring out that old putter that they maybe haven't touched, um, you know, except for last year's Masters, and they're going to bring it again because it, it worked well. It, it, it served them well uh, on Augusta's uh, fast green. So y- you're exactly right. right. Superstition sometimes can play a little bit into it as well. Um, all right, Bill, I'm, uh, again, take a deep breath. I've, this question is going to be for you, and, and I'm going to read something first, and then uh, I want to get your thoughts on it. It kind of rolls into what we've been talking about. Um, of course, the late Arnold Palmer, uh, here's his thoughts on, on sort of uh, playing the majors. He, he believed it was not possible to coordinate peak performance with major championships, so he approached every tournament with the same intensity. And and quoting him here, he said, I just wanted to win. I played every tournament as if it were the Masters or U.S. Open or any other major. The best way to be ready for a major was to sustain a major mindset. What are your thoughts on Arnie's strategy when it comes to that? He treated it, he didn't differentiate, um, you know, a, a major from another or from a different tournament. He wanted to win every tournament that he uh, you know, laced those golf shoes up for and, and pulled out that driver. So he played with the same intensity. What about that mindset? I really, I have to agree with that an awful lot because, you know, 
we get to hearing, and, and some of this is some of the babble from commentators, too. Well, he's just playing here to get some repetitions in. And I, I don't think that's right. Anybody that's a true champion, anytime they tee it up, they're intending on winning. They aren't just playing to play. And I think that's the, that's the difference between champions and people who come up a little bit short is, is it's that mental mindset. Right. You have to have that major mindset to be able to win. And I, I have to agree with Mr. Palmer, um, you know, 10,000% on that because I think, you know, at times you hear this, well, he's going to play this to get some repetition. Yeah, I can understand that if a player's been away for a while like Tiger or somebody from injury, that may make sense. Yeah. But when they're in good, good spirit and good health, just to play someplace to play, I, I really think that's a recipe for disaster, not only short-term but long-term. Yeah, and, and you know, our, uh, the interesting thing, and Chuck, I'll let you uh, add some thoughts in here in just a second. I think the interesting thing that I liked about Arnie was, you know, even as he got older, he always believed, he had that mindset that he could still win. Um, and I think that's why it was so difficult when it came time that he, you know, more or less retired from the majors particularly. You know, we saw him leaving the Masters and, and you know, some years back, and then, you know, uh, obviously over in St. Andrews and, and so forth. And it was very difficult because he still had that competitive fire. He didn't have the game anymore, um, and he knew that, but he still had that competitive fire and, and determination, and, and he always wanted to go out no matter where he was playing. Uh, and, and the same analogy could be true with how he treated everybody. You know, just whether you were the, the Queen of England or whether you were you know, a steel worker up in Pittsburgh, it didn't matter to him. He treated you with the same dignity, courtesy, and respect as he would anybody else. Um, so it didn't matter what title or, or collar you had around your neck. Uh, you, were, you were somebody important to him, and I think he did that with all of the tournaments that he played in as well. Um, Chuck, what are your thoughts there? Uh, do you agree with, with, with what Bill said uh, on, on Arnie? Well, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, every player uh, approaches each tournament as, as you know, they, they come to win. Uh, now, having been out mm-hmm. there with several of these players, I can tell you that some of them will say that, and they're hoping that they're just and they're hoping to make the cut and finish in the top ten. Uh, but publicly, yeah. they're telling you they come to every tournament and win. But there is a huge difference between, and this is not not a slam to any other tournament. There's a huge difference between playing at a PGA Tour event and a major championship. So. You know, everybody goes to a major because they they want that. If you have, I mean, look at all the wins Payne Stewart had. I mean, they used to call him Avis because he finished second all the time. Well, then he started winning tournaments. Right. Then he won, you know, the U.S. Open. So, you know, um, yep. and those were his, his biggest moments. But you approach the majors totally different. Yes, you want to win because it, it's really a notch in your belt. Yeah, I mean, you can have a great career and win 20 PGA Tour events. But if you don't win a major, you're you're looked down a little bit, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, just, I can just tell you from experience being out there, all these guys will tell you, you know, they'll, they'll tell the they'll tell the audience anyway they're here to win. But under their breath, they're saying, "Gosh, I hope I can just finish, you know, top twenty-five, you know." <laughs> uh, so right. you know, before you can win right. a tournament, the first thing um, you have to do it, is make it, the cut, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know what? I can remember hearing players. I, I remember hearing players, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, they were they were happy if they were 
still in the, the top 125 just to retain their, their tour cards. You know, if they hadn't won a tournament right. um, to, to get those exemptions, they were just hoping to make the, hot, the top 125. So, right. you know, right. uh, again, it, it's all about, goes back to mindset. Um, all right, Chuck, I want to, we're going to piggyback again on you uh, here this time. And, and so take a deep breath and, and now we're going to flip it over onto Nicholas. Uh, you had already sort of touched on this in, in uh, an earlier comment, but I, I want to just read something else, uh, and then I, I want you to, to, to give your thoughts on, on what Nicholas has to say. Uh, Jack Nicholas also naturally wanted to win every tournament he entered, uh, but he used the PGA Tour schedule to help him build his game so that he could peak for each of the four majors. Uh, in fact, Jack uh, felt better about his chances if he were not fully uh, on form when he arrived at a major. Uh, and he said here, and I quote, I always wanted to feel like my game was still on the rise uh, even throughout the week. So, uh, you know, he wanted to, um, you know, he wanted to prepare himself. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, he didn't play, you know, 24, 25 uh, tournaments every year. He worked everything around those four major championships. And then he try to, you know, build off of that. Um, what do you think of his strategy uh, as opposed to what uh, Arnie's was? Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was saying earlier. I mean, Jack, you know, his his sole focus was was major championships, you know. If he could have done, only played four events a year and got away with it, that's probably all he'd have done, you know. Um, but, yeah, you use the schedule to your advantage. I mean, you know, first-year guys, uh, and gals, when they go out, they play in everything they can get in uh, because they need to see the courses and see which course it fits them the best. So after that, then they start whittling down their schedule a little bit so they only play the courses that they that they play really well uh, unless they need to play more, you know, to boost their self up in the money list or they're on a hot hand, whatever you want to call it, you know. But, uh, right. you know, you can – you can you can go out there and you can just you know you can be a world beater all year and then you miss the cut you know I mean um, I, I don't want to ruin it for people but you know the, uh, last year's last year's uh, winner uh, didn't fare very well today so you know they can look at that later but right. did it did it peak I I don't even know if he played last week I'm not sure uh, and when I was referring to bubble winning. Uh, that was the week before. Of course, Ian won the playoff last year or last week. So, you know. Um, right. But I think I think that you do. I think it, it's just like anything else. I mean, you know, you look at baseball and they play, what, 162 games? Those guys are worn out at the end of the year. Right. Football players. I mean, postseason, I mean, that's when they're all recovering from these minor injuries. and I mean, it, it, it takes its toll on you. People don't think golf is a sport. Well, if it's not a sport, why are they having all these injuries? Back injuries, uh, calf injuries, right. chest injuries, you know? I, I mean, it is. So it's, it's not your it, – it, the, the game that they play and how they play it is totally different from how the club players approach it. So you can go out as a club player, sure. ride in your car, have a few beers, smoke some cigars, you know, flirt with a cart girl. When you get done, you're not exhausted. But you, you go out here. I think the I think the average walk at Augusta <laughs> is somewhere around eleven miles um, per round, and with all the undulations, right. it, it's the equivalent. It's the equivalent of, of climbing 
you know, like 150 stories every single day. So it, yep. it wears them out. It wears the caddies out. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a marathon. I've heard, uh, I've actually heard some of the caddies talk about it. It's, it's like running a marathon, um, you know, and then on top of that, the, the mental game's got to be engaged in, in order to think their way. And, and that can be very difficult, you know, when you're hitting those last few holes, that last stretch of, you know, three or four holes, and you're physically, right. you know, starting to feel, you know, and I know these guys, most of them are in good shape, but there's a few guys out there that, uh, you know, that aren't the young guns anymore, and I'm sure it, it takes their toll. I mean, you know, we saw uh, Freddie out there today, and, you know, Freddie's still in pretty decent shape, but, uh, you know, he's one of the older guns, and I'm sure he feels you know, every, every ache and pain going up and down those hills. Um, Bill, what about well, your thoughts on his... Nicholas's strategy as opposed to, to Arnie's? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Chuck, finish your thought, hey. and then I'll turn it over yeah. to Bill. No, 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 that's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, you definitely see that, that part uh, of it, too. Bill, and that, go ahead. That, that goes, yeah. That, uh, I see that, that angle of it and going towards peaky. You know, he's always working to get better. It's it's like golf is a, is not a it's it's not a feat. It's not something you accomplish. It's something you play, and you want to get that role going. And you definitely see what Nicholas was saying there about you know I'm always going to continue to improve. Is the I think the mindset that he was utilizing there and keeping it rolling because then you know in that case he'd be there at the at the very end. And I think sometimes we think okay, we've got it, and you see these, in, and I'm sure Chuck runs this too, where you're coaching players and even some very, very accomplished players where they start going and they think they have it. And we forget <laughs> that they got to be continually working on their setup. they got to be continually working on their mental routine, their short games. And I think that's the big difference with, with this game is we got to continually work to get better and better all the time. And, you know, that's the, and I think that's a little bit of what he alludes to Mr. Nicholas on that is that, you know, I'm not going to come here and I'm playing perfectly when it's Monday. He had the mindset that he's, yeah, I might be playing okay when it's Monday, but by Sunday I'm going to be at my very best. And, you know, it's a little different way to approach it. Maybe a lot the same way Mr. Palmer did, but Mr. Palmer just said it in a little different phrase. You know, he's going to be, everything's going to be going on all guns, but by the end of the week I'm going to be right there. So, Right, right, exactly, and 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 you're right. I think there was a, a similar approach. I think it was just the 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 way it was described um, by each of them, but uh, essentially the the same result uh, was in the end. Um, all right, Bill, I'm going to uh, again piggyback onto you on this one here, and this is something that uh, uh, the 2015 PGA champion uh, Jason Day uh, talks about, and I, I think it's a little different than a major mindset. But we'll, we'll get your thoughts on this. Um, he, he says it's, you know, it, it's all about attitude. Um, when it comes to major golf, he thinks it's the attitude and the emotion that you bring into it. So if you're coming in with the right attitude, uh, then yeah, most likely you're going to do well. So how much does having the right attitude uh, affect players? I mean, you can come in there as we talked about earlier. Um, you know, I, I want to win the tournament. I'm going to win the tournament. And having that right mindset and a positive mindset, but also the attitude and your emotions. Emotions play a huge key. Uh, what are your thoughts there? I couldn't be said better. Um, the attitude is, is, is a lot of the aptitude, really, when it comes to that level, the, the differences between the players. 
uh, you know, re- referring back to what I mentioned earlier, when Mr. Nicholas would say somebody would, would be complaining about the speed of the greens or the length of the rough, uh, check him off. And he'll rightly say that, check him off the list, check him off the list, because that it's the attitude. Um, you know, you have to embrace this, yeah. the opportunity and enjoy yourself, because if you don't, it's going to be a miserable, really, two days, and then you're going to be uh, trunk slamming it and heading on back to back to home a little bit early. The attitude is is so much of it right. because you know the it's the positive. You have to look at things through a positive rose colored glass because if you're looking at it from a negative and this and I can't do this and I don't want to do this, pretty soon it's going to be you're going to tie yourself up in knots and mentally you're going to be a mess. And you know that's something that you ex- absolutely have a lot of control over is your thought process. Yeah. Um, and, and Chuck, what about emotion? I mean, you know, obviously you have to have the right uh, attitude, and, and I agree with what Bill said. But emotionally as well, you know, if a player comes in and they're emotionally, um, you know, not engaged or they're, you know, maybe thinking about something else that's taking, you know, for instance, if you go back several years ago uh, when Phil Mickelson's uh, wife was, I don't remember what child it was, but they were having a child uh, and she was uh, just about due, um, you know, his mind is there. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward a few years after that, um, you know, she was having some, some issues with cancer. Uh, you know, so, so that's got to churn up the emotions. How does that affect uh, some of the players coming into a major tournament like this as well? That's got to have some, some negative and maybe positive uh, effects as well, depending on the emotion. Yeah, well, you, you, you've got to, the first thing you've got to do is keep all of your emotions in check. I mean, that's, that's, coming into it and during it. I mean, you know, if you go out and you make double on a hole, you've got to, you've got to, you know, man up and forget that hole. You've got to move on to the next hole because if you keep thinking about that double, uh, you know, you can get down pretty darn quick. So you've got to keep your emotions in check on the course too. Not too high, not too low, but just stay kind of level with it, you know. And I know it's easy to say it's a lot harder to do, uh, especially with younger golfers, uh, you know, junior golfers, high school, college. I mean, they're 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 on an emotional roller coaster the whole round. You know, they make a birdie and they make a birdie. And they're on cloud nine. They make they make a bogey and they bury their heads in the sand. And again, those are differences between you know the world's best players and your and your good tour players and your good amateurs. Is the best players in the world are able to throttle their emotions for that time and space that they're in right then. Regardless of what's going on on home or what's right. going on around them, you know, after the round's over, yeah, then, they, then they'll go right back to thinking about that. Um, but you've got to keep focused on what you're doing because if you don't, it'll get away from you pretty darn quick. Yeah, and, and I think it's important, too, um, you know, having a supportive partner, you know, one of the things that, you know, always impressed me uh, besides his obviously incredible uh, golfing career uh, about Jack Nicholas was, you know, he always talked about Barbara Nicholas about how, you know, not only did she handle things back at home, so that gave him a sense of ease and confidence that things were being taken care of, but she was always supportive uh, in, in what he was doing and, and how he was, um, you know, handling himself. And I'm sure, you know, like every um, situation that you have ups and downs uh, when he wasn't playing well, I mean, I'm sure it was very difficult. But having that strong uh, partner there 
to, to you know, keep those emotions in check and help you sort of prop things up uh, in, in the difficult times uh, is, is also equally important as well. And I think that plays a major factor with, with any player, but uh, particularly the ones that, that uh, are married out there. Um, Chuck, again, uh, take another deep breath. I'm coming back to you on this one. I think, uh, I think it's your turn to go back to back. Um, and and here's, here's the scenario here. Um, if I'm an analyzing guy, if I'm someone that analyzes everything and I'm coming too much from a practice uh, perspective or analyzing mode, coming into a tournament like the Masters, how do I then switch into playing mode? So I'm coming, and I'm one of these guys analyzing, you know, like a Nick Faldo, let's say, that's always analyzing, tweaking, and, and adjusting things. But now I'm at the Masters, I've got to switch into play mode. How do I do that? How do I mentally, or what do I say to myself, say, okay, now it's time to, to, to play the game, not practice? Well, you know, they do that each and every week, regardless whether it's the Masters or not. Um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is when you're analyzing. You're working on whatever you're working on. You've got uh, measuring tools out there like flight scope, you know, um, or 3D motion analysis. But, you know, you're always out measuring uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But then Thursday, you know, you got to take away all the toys. And the things that you've done the first three days need to carry over from there. Uh, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen guys at a tour event come out and, warm and loosen up. Uh, during the week, you know, and they may hit balls for 15, 20 minutes, and then they're out, you know, doing practice rounds. I've seen other guys out there that will stand on that range for eight hours every single day and do one practice round. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's kind of up to the individual, but, but again, you know, it, it's, that's part of the emotional part. You have to turn that stuff off. The only analyzing that you're doing when you're, actually in the play mode, is you're getting your yardage, your windage, uh, you know, your type of line, where you want to hit the shot and what shot shape. That's the extent of the analyzing. Right. Right. Well said. Um, Bill, what are your thoughts there? I mean, obviously you've worked with um, some elite players and uh, you've worked with obviously some some of our higher handicappers out there that – probably have the same type of situation. They're very analytical and, and always sort of in that practice mode. And we've talked about this before, you know, sort of coming from bringing that range game into now playing mode. Uh, what do you suggest? What are some of your thoughts on, on making that transition? Well, let's go to the high handicapper first. We have to build some practice in that's game-like practice, utilizing the routine, hitting four, five shots and scoring those five shots with different clubs, things like that. So you make your practice more like the play. And I think that's where people miss it a little bit. The, the average club player, as Chuck refers to, they go out and hit balls and then try to do the same thing on the golf course. And mentally that just doesn't, doesn't compute very well. So we have to build that little bit of practice or some skill building, but there's also some um, confidence building for the, for the course, because if we don't do that, you're going to end up in a, in a really bad spot. You're going to be out there playing golf swing instead of golf. Um, you know, for the little more elite right. player, as Chuck was saying, you have to kind of fit it into the way that they are wired. You know, their learning type, are they visual, are they audio, are they feel, Do they, um, are they very analytical player? And then we can, you know, we can kind of foster the things that they have to analyze. You know, when they're on the, maybe we have a, a setup key for them that they can be very, very, set on so they know that they're trying to perfect that as opposed to the swing itself 
And I think that's one of the things that we have to look at. You know, everybody wants to have that consistency when they move through and, and truly thought there's only two things a, a person can do consistently in this game is stand up to the golf ball consistently correctly and think consistently. Those are the only two things we can really do. Mm-hmm. The swing itself is, is built from those two areas, and we need to really try to make the practice and the play almost overlap one another. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree totally. I, I think a lot of it, guys, boils down to this. is you, You've got to learn, um, you know, one of the things that, that sometimes can cripple a player, and, and the reason I refer to Nick Faldo um, was, you know, there were times in his career where he got a little bit too analytical with his game and it didn't serve him well. There were other times when he needed to be uh, a little bit more analytical and he needed to, uh, you know, to be able to dial into whatever, you know, situation he was in. Um, but I think for regardless of whether you're an elite player or, um, you know, a high handicap or 25 or plus handicap, you know, you've got to, keep your analyzing as, as Chuck said, you know, to the, to the key issues that you need while you're playing your round, all of the other stuff, that's what you work on in the practice tee and with your coach or your, your uh, swing instructor. Those are the things that you can be a little bit more analytical then, but when you get out on the golf course, there's only certain things that you want to be thinking about. You don't need to be thinking about, well, is my arm in the right slot? And, you know, and you don't want to get into all of this because what that ends up doing is, uh, and you guys know this, uh, you know, better than anybody is you're going to derail uh, all of the efforts that you've been putting into uh, to be able to play a good round, you're going to sabotage all of that hard work. So, um, you know, sometimes keeping it simple out in the golf course and just focusing on the task at hand, the shape of the shot, uh, Chuck, as you mentioned, uh, what's the yardage if there's, you know, if it's a windy day, where's the wind coming and how much wind do I have to adjust accordingly? Uh, you know, and, and obviously if you're hitting some clubs better than others, maybe if you're not hitting your driver that well, maybe you want to scale back and, and hit, um, you know, your three wood or maybe even go to, uh, to a hybrid or something like that. So there's a lot of those types of adjustments that might need to be made. But overall, uh, I think that uh, you want to leave the, the hardcore analyzing, as I put it, you want to leave that on the practice tier, the range. Um, all right, guys, I thought we would, would sort of end uh, the segment tonight. We've got a, a little bit more time here. I'm going to give you guys uh, some time at the end to, to obviously any plugs that you want to do. But, um, you know, everybody's been talking about Tiger Woods for several weeks uh, and actually several years. You know, is Tiger back? Is he going to be back? And, and I want to get your thoughts on this, predictions for this, for this week. Uh, does he play well, not so good, uh, or even add another green jacket? Um, Chuck, I'm going to start with you. What are your thoughts for Tiger Woods this week? Well, you know, um, the swing's looking a lot better. Uh, you know, it's actually it's actually a culmination of a lot of the stuff that he and Chris Como did that he wasn't able to do until he had his back surgery. Um, I can tell you that, right. you know, his, his, uh, his master's record, uh, he's had one round, typically the first round, he's had uh, one round under par in the first round. He's had 40-something rounds under par in the second round, 30-something under par in the third round, and 20-something in the fourth round. So he's typically not a fast starter. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that uh, if he can control his driver, um, you know, he's always been a really good putter and iron player. So I, I, I think he's got a chance for, uh, you know, 
top five, top ten. Uh, I think the whole world would like to see him win. It'd cause, a, you know, uh, what a commotion that would be. What a match right. that would be, huh? Tigers come back and win. But <laughs> right. I think realistically, you know, he's top ten somewhere uh, if he manages the driver. Right. Right. Well, and, and uh, Bill, before I get to you, you know, uh, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody that, that maybe is getting home a little bit late and hasn't had a chance to watch it. I won't, you know, spoil what, what the outcome was today for him. Um, but I will say this. One of the comments that was made uh, is that he didn't pay, play the, the par fives uh, as well as he would have liked to. And that's, uh, you know, coming from him. So I know that that right. was always a big thing for, for Tiger was to be able to play those par fives. Um, you know, with, with some sort of, uh, you know, skill. And, and obviously they, those let him down a little bit today. So that is reflective, of course, in, in, in his overall round. Um, but Bill, what are your, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, we've watched Tiger now uh, sort of come back uh, a few times over the years, um, but not like this. Uh, I think what's different about this time is there's a different attitude, what we are talking about earlier uh, in the segment and uh, in, in how I see him. Uh, I don't think it's just so much the physical side of things anymore. I think it's it's the mental side of things seem to be stronger. He seems to be, uh, I don't want to use the term getting back to old Tiger, but I think that he uh, is starting to be more comfortable within himself uh, now that the injuries have, have sort of been put behind and, and have been dealt with. Um, what are your thoughts this uh, week uh, at the Masters for Tiger? Yeah, I think his his game is coming on form, definitely. As as Chuck mentioned, he's swinging so much better um, than he has, you know, in the last, gosh, whenever prior to the injuries. Now he's getting himself back into the position where he can keep the ball in front of him. And, you know, that driver's still a little bit of a mystery. And, you know, he hasn't ever, you know, barring real early in his career when he, he got things going in 2000, he had that stinger going and the driver was halfway decent at that point in time. But, you know, over time it's been a little bit of a suspect with the two way miss. He gets that thing going. And even if it's a one way miss now, he's going to be in contention really fast. And I think the biggest thing that got him was all the scar tissue in his brain missing the driver two ways, because that's just, you you can't aim close enough to the middle to say, satisfy your anxiety. And that was a lot of it. And then, you know, it runs through the rest of the bag. And he was, you know, maybe as well as good a putter as there ever been on the planet. And that took a toll, too. There was a lot of misses and, you know, a lot of putts that he generally made because of the pressure. It just gets cyclical. And I think, you know, as Chuck said, he keeps the tee ball in play. He's going to be a, a force to reckon with because his iron play now is as good as it's been in a long time. He's really flighting the ball nicely and, you know, there's so many good things right. going on with it, but he just, you know, just has to free up and be himself is really what it is. Yeah. Um, my prediction is, is similar to, to Chuck's a little bit um, with a little bit, uh, I guess, of a different twist, uh, for lack of better words. Um, I, I don't see Tiger winning uh, this week, uh, and not because I don't think he, he has the game. Um, uh, you know, as you just pointed out, Bill, you know, he's, he's flooding the, his irons. Well, the driver is, is still a little bit suspect, but I think for tiger, here's what I, what I predict. I think, you know, it might be top 10, might be top 15, uh, but he's certainly going to do well. I think overall through the tournament, I think as the tournament goes, uh, unless something really falls apart, I think you're going to see him. He may not necessarily get into contention, but I think what tiger needs right now, in, in my opinion, forgetting all the swing issues and things like that 
he needs to get a win. And I don't think it's going to happen with a major. I think he's going to need probably two wins before he wins another major. And the reason why I say that is I don't care how your mindset is. I don't care how strong or mentally you are. If you haven't won a tournament at this level for a long period of time, I'll I'll use Freddie Couples as an example. Freddie had a stretch there where he hadn't been winning. And I remember how emotional he was. And I don't remember the year, but he won the Shell, uh, Shell Houston Open. And literally, uh, when he was uh, being interviewed, broke down because I don't think in his mind he felt he could win um, just because he'd had so many issues with his back and that. I think Tiger needs to put uh, a tournament, maybe two tournaments in that win column before I think he's going to get those competitive juices. Now, he's out there, he's playing, and he's playing phenomenal. And over the last several weeks, we've seen him get better and better and better. Uh, short, you know, his irons are coming, short games coming back. His putting's getting a little better, you know, driver. He's always had some issues here and there, but I'm sure it'll get better. But I think for confidence, I think he needs to get a win under his belt. And I think it needs to happen this year uh, before he's going to win a major. Just my thoughts. I may be totally wrong, but I think he's got to get, and I think he's going to have to get two wins because I don't think one will be enough. I think he's going to need to get two wins. Doesn't matter what tournament it is. And I think then you're going to start seeing that, that sort of old tiger, that fire in his belly, because he's older now as well. It's another factor to keep in there. So his nerves are a little bit different. Um, just my thoughts. What do you think about that prediction? Either one, guys. Yeah, I think, well, obviously, you know, winning breeds success and winning breeds winning. So, uh, you know, the last, uh, I think the last time he played in at Augusta was 20. 15, 14, something like that, and he finished 15th, 17th. So, you know, he hasn't he hasn't really right. had a win. Uh, but if he wins, you know, I mean, he's, he's I'm sure he's already confident. You know, he, he lost it for a while, but he seems really mm-hmm. confident right now. Uh, he seems more like the old Tiger in the interviews. You know, he's a little more lighthearted. He's smiling again. You know, it may take one, may take two, right. may take three, but but I think it's going to take at least one because he needs that that boost of confidence back, and that and that will as right. much as I, he wants to say, as much as he might want to say he's back, uh, until he actually wins, then he can say I'm back, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. finishing right, exactly. finishing and, and, finishing and, one and, off is huge. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it is, and, and, and you're right. I, I agree with you, Chuck, and, and, and I don't want to take away from what he's done. I mean, I, I, I certainly have a much better – I mean, he's come back – this is, what, about the third time that he's, you know, quote-unquote, according to many in the golf profession, you know, that Tiger's back. You know, every time he tees yeah. that well, Tiger's back. And then, you know, he would sort of fall by the wayside. But this is the first legitimate, in my opinion, um, effort on his part that I see uh, a positive trend moving forward. So I, I think he is back – in the sense that he's he's healthier, he's ready to play, he's, his game is, is help-building confidence. But I really think he needs to get one in the W column before you really start to see things take off. And I think until he does that, he's certainly going to continue to improve, and at some point he's going to win. But I think that that win is going to, give, is going to just sort of give him that final, okay, yeah, now I feel good about everything. I, I know I'm able to, right. to close it because – Again, we've seen how many times in, in, in not just golf but in other sports, um, you know, I don't care how many majors you win or how many tournaments you win, 
if you've had a stretch where you haven't won anything for a while, you can't help. It's just human nature that you're going to, you know, it's going to chisel away a little bit at your confidence. So uh, that's just my prediction. I think that, that he's got to get a win. And, yeah, it'd be fantastic if he won uh, this weekend. But I don't particularly see that, that happening. But, but, you know, who knows? But um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, well, well, guys, I want to thank you for, for coming on Coach's Corner tonight. You guys did a fantastic job, as always, and very interesting and stimulating conversation. Um, Bill, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, update us what's what's happening. You're still in the sunny south. Uh, you haven't made it quite back up to Illinois yet, uh, enjoying some of no. the, the great weather in South Florida. Uh, <laughs> no. As I've got older, I've, so I've grown some uh, gray what, hair. I've grown wiser. I've tried to stay here as long as I can. No, I head out. Uh, I'll be available in Chicago. And my last day uh, coaching here is uh, April 15th, and I'll be in Chicago a, a week later on the 24th, available for lessons there at Balmoral Woods uh, Country Club um, in Crete, Illinois, just south of the city. Okay, so uh, for those that, that want to uh, reach out to you, how do they, how do they go about doing that, uh, Bill? simple way is just go to my website, BillAbramsGolf.com. Perfect, and all of your contact information is there, and they can learn Everything's learn a little, right. little bit about some of the programs. Right yes. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yep. Um, now, Chuck, Chuck, I know you've got lots of things going on. You're you're getting ready to pack your bags and and move uh, back out to, to the east coast and the sunny south. Uh, tell us about your exciting news. Well, so uh, I'm going back to Emerald Bay Golf Club in Justin, Florida. Uh, I was there before for about four years and uh, moved out and came out west because they said this is where you go, you know, if you have uh, you have respiratory issues, and it turned out not to be the place to go. Um, and in between uh, stops in my hometown in Kansas City where we had four academies. But I'm going back to Destin, Florida, Emerald Bay Golf Club. Uh, you can reach me through my website, uh, chuckevansgolf.com. You can also email me at chuck at chuckevansgolf.com. Or you can call me on my cell, which is 850-687-7995. And I'll officially start May 1st, although I'll be there earlier. But, you know, you can count on May 1st for the official start date. Perfect. Well, guys, as always, uh, I appreciate you uh, bringing your best to uh, the Coach's Corner panel. It's always a uh, Fun to have you guys on, and, and um, you know you always uh, are, are welcome here anytime. To uh, not only on the panel, but uh, if you guys have, have got something to share or something you want to talk about, uh, you know to reach out to me, and, and we'll uh, we'll set it up and get it done. But uh, guys, enjoy the Masters this weekend. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting tournament. No matter who wins, it's already off to a great start, uh, as we all know from from some of the highlights we've seen and 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 heard. Um, so get out there and, and, and enjoy it, and um, keep up doing the great work. And, and again, thank you for uh, for giving me your time tonight on the Coach's Corner panel. Well, thanks for having us on, uh, Ted and Bill. I'll uh, see you sometime. Yep, I'll be talking to you soon. And uh, Ted, again, thanks as always for all you do for us in golf. Thank you so much, and keep up the good work. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks, and have a great weekend. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. That was my very special guest, uh, Bill Abrams, uh, PJ professional and owner of the and director of Instruction uh, Golf Solutions Academy up in Balmoral Woods in Crate, Illinois, uh, which you'll be heading up there in a few weeks. 
Uh, and he's also uh, down in Florida right now for a little bit uh, longer uh, at the Golf Channel Academy uh, with uh, Dave uh, David Impastado at the Heron Bay uh, in Coral Springs, Florida. Uh, also, Chuck Evans, who was also on the panel tonight, uh, again, I mentioned he was a Golf Magazine's Top 100 teacher. Uh, also, uh, with Golf Digest, he was one of the top teachers in America and a top 50 growth of the game teacher uh, as well as the owner of his own uh, academy, golf uh, Evan uh, Chuck Evans Golf, excuse me, and uh, also now he's going to be heading down here and beginning May 1st, he's going to be the director of instruction uh, over in Destin, Florida, at the Emerald Bay Golf Club. Just a hop, skip, and a jump down the street from me. So uh, if you want to uh, go and see Chuck, uh, he's definitely uh, got some great uh, great tips for you. Um, let me just remind everybody uh, as I wait for my uh, my special guest this evening. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, is Peter Kessler. Uh, golf announcer, legendary golf announcer known as The Voice, and I'll tell you a little bit about, about him in a few minutes, but let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live uh, here on blogtalkradio.com every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, Central, and uh, always uh, enjoy doing what I do here on the show, and uh, the best way to find is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, or just type in golf talk live up in the search key, and that will take you to the main page. And you can listen there live every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. For some reason, if you can't join us live, you can just scroll down that link and uh, you'll see the uh, on that page rather, and you'll see the on-demand section. And uh, you can listen to any of the shows, including tonight's, will be there after uh, in their entirety. Uh, the recorded versions are available there to listen to whenever it's convenient for you. Uh, you can also go to iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, or now TuneIn.com. And you can get uh, the full shows there as well uh, under the podcast section. Again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the pages uh, under those respective uh, media platforms. Uh, be sure to follow on uh, social media on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You'll find me there uh, on Facebook. If you can go to my personal page, it's Ted Odorico, and it's O-D-O-R-I-C-O uh, is the correct spelling of my last name. Uh, you're welcome to uh, see all of the updates uh, every week for both of the shows for not only this one, but for the uh, Tuesday morning show, which I'll tell you about in just a moment here. Um, you'll find uh, all updates every week. I will post uh, on the show for golf talk live. Who's going to be coming on, who's going to be on the coach's corner panel and who my special guest of the evening is going to be. I always put that uh, usually a few days ahead of each uh, uh, respective show. Uh, and you can also scroll down there and you can actually, there's a link right there that you can click on through Facebook while you're visiting and you can go and take to the main page and listen to whatever show uh, that you choose to. Um, also on LinkedIn, again, under my personal name, Ted Odorico, uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, by all means, uh, more than happy, especially if you're in the golf industry, I always like to connect with my fellow professionals and, and others in the business. Uh, it's always great to share uh, thoughts and ideas and, and exchange them uh, through a professional network like LinkedIn. And also on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO, uh, and that's CEO in capital letters. And thank you for all of the recent followers uh, and for some of the, the great messages that I've been receiving uh, through Twitter as well. Thanks, guys, for all of your continued support. Um, you can also uh, reach out to me through my email. If you're somebody in the golf profession and maybe you're interested in coming on the show and you'd like to uh, share uh, some of your thoughts or maybe your perspective uh, of the game, uh, always uh, happy to uh, to do that. Or maybe you've got a great event coming up uh, or something of, of that nature. Maybe you've written a great book. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an instructional book. Maybe maybe it's a golf book um, uh, about your own personal journey 
Uh, maybe it's uh, just your perspective on the game. Uh, reach out to me through my email. My email is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And I'll take a look and, and maybe we'll work something out and have you come on as a guest one evening on the show. I'd love to have you. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my, my very special guest tonight. And then uh, as soon as he comes online, I will bring him aboard and we'll start the second half of Golf Talk Live. As I mentioned a, a few moments ago, Peter Kessler is my very special guest tonight. He's a golf, uh, golf announcer known as The Voice. Um, he was The Voice for HBO Sports uh, from 1990 through 95 narrating Peabody, Ace, and Emmy Award-winning documentaries, including uh, When It Was a Game, When It Was a Game 2, uh, The Boxing Trilogy, In This Corner, and The Sweet Science. Uh, he was the premier talent at the Golf Channel from 1995 to 2002 and hosted, wrote, and produced uh, over 1,300 live one-hour episodes of four different shows, Golf Talk Live, uh, of course, uh, Academy Live, Viewers Forum, and, of course, Masters Highlights. Uh, an active fix, uh, fixture in the golf industry, Peter has been featured in multiple golf publications around the world, including cover stories in Golf World and Golf Week. Uh, his expertise and historical acumen uh, was the subject of a 10-page profile and interview in Golf Digest. Additionally, Peter has uh, produced programs for Callaway Golf, Adams Golf, uh, uh, Gary Player Golf, and of course, Bobby Jones Golf. Uh, the first voice on the PGA Tour Network, Peter also wrote and hosted a daily uh, show from 2005 through uh, 15. Uh, his podcast on iTunes, uh, which I'll tell you about in a second, uh, was rated the number one golf podcast for 2014 and 15. Uh, continually sought after for narrating uh, work. Uh, Peter has provided vo voiceover talent for American Express, the NBA, uh, the USTA, and the Boys and Girls Club of America. And as I mentioned, his podcast, Reading the Break, uh, Reading the Break is a free podcast woven from the history of the game and hosted masterfully uh, by a masterfully storyteller and renowned uh, golf historian. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Peter Kessler. So um, we'll wait a moment for him to, to come on board, and uh, then we'll begin tonight's discussion. I see he's here, so we'll let's uh, welcome aboard, and let's uh, get started with tonight's uh, very special guest, Peter Kessler. How are you doing, Good fellas? evening, Peter, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Uh, it's great I'm to be doing, with you. What I'm a day to well. be with you. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I'm assuming that you've had a chance to uh, watch a little bit of the Masters today. Uh, I don't think I missed much, no. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> it was one of the really, it was really one of the great, great opening rounds in, in a lot of ways because pretty much everybody, except for Justin Thomas, who's a couple over, and Jason Day is three over, just about everybody's in this thing, and here we have Jordan Spieth, who found his putting touch last week, and uh, he was just right. absolutely brilliant. It got very, very aggressive, but the, it was a, it was an absolutely perfect day of golf because everybody, pretty much that you hoped would play well, played pretty well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I was mentioning earlier to the guys uh, on the panel discussion. You know, we talked a little bit of Tiger, and I'm, I'm going to talk to you about Tiger a little bit later on uh, in our segment. But, um, you know, th they mentioned that, you know, he wasn't really uh, comfortably playing the par fives in today's round, which I know has always been a big advantage for him to be able to do that. I didn't get a chance to watch him play today. I'm going to watch some of the highlights after we're done here tonight. Um, but what were your thoughts and, and what you saw him play today? Well, I, I, I have a number of thoughts. I he uh, teed off with a three-wood on the first hole and snapped it and uh, had to lay up short right on one, and the pin was all the way back right, and it's a tricky little 
uh, shot, and he rolled it up to a couple of feet, and uh, and then two for me was the telltale. He he had uh, what looked like to be about a four or five iron into the second green for a second shot on the par five, and made what I thought was a very wow. fast swing that was a little off balance with not good tempo and. Uh, he shoved it, and he uh, didn't hit a good bunker shot, and he made uh, an unfortunate par there, you know, the easiest par you could possibly make. And so I thought he was a little nervous right. when he started his round today. And then the, the the first key thing that happened was actually not a good thing. He made a beautiful birdie on three, almost drove the green, and left himself the, the, the shot up the length of the green, which is what you want from the left side to that pin, and still had a tough putt and, and mm-hmm. barely breathed on it and made it. But then he missed three very makeable putts from inside of 10 feet on four, on five, and then on six for birdie, which was the putt that you'd most want. If you had to have a six-footer, this is the one. It was uphill with a little right to left in it. And uh, and that put him behind the, the the eight ball. And, you know, when he he, he, he hit uh, – he, he had a, a bad second shot on eight, and, um, and, it, and it was, you know, from a strategic point of view, really, really sloppy. And the best he was going to make there was par because he left himself an impossible angle for the pitch. And it took him a while to settle down. And he never quite fully settled down. But then he did, you know, I'm sure like millions of other people around the world who are watching Tiger on the 12th hole today, when he made that swing, it yep. didn't look good. And it goes in the water. And all of a sudden now he's got 20 feet for bogey. And people are sitting at home and they're mm-hmm. watching this and they're saying, my weekend is over. He's going to make a double. He's going to go right. to four over. <laughs> he's he's going to slop it around and make one more bogey coming in. He's going to shoot 77. And what? And do I really have any interest in watching tomorrow? Millions and millions and millions of people. And then he did the thing that Jones did. You know that you think of Bobby Jones in 1929 at the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. He came to the 72nd hole. And he had made two sevens, mm-hmm. and he'd had a seven-shot lead. And now he's got a 12-footer, a really tough one, left to right, downhill. And it's got to be so perfectly gauged that if the hole was just a circle, it needed to stop in the center of the circle. That's how perfect it had to be. And he knocked it in, and then he wins the playoff of 36 holes by 23 shots. And, you know, what Tiger and Jack used to always make the five footer that was critical, or he would hit the critical shot, the the right, one iron right. against one iron against Arnold in '67 at Baltusrol that people don't talk about on the last hole very much, but he got it up and down from 218 yards uphill and and broke the Hogan scoring record. So just key things that either kept rounds together or closed things out. But I think there's no way to. Um, overstate how important the bogey putt was, and then you're certain from an emotional point of view that he's certainly going to go ahead and birdie 13, and he's going to turn it around the corner, and he doesn't, and he makes a five, and then all, and then on a hole that you don't necessarily yeah. think he's going to make a birdie 14, he goes ahead and makes one, and then he 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 has a, a bad 15th hole, and then he hits a stunning shot at 16. So it was it was a real Jekyll and Hyde round, but if you think about it. You know, he ended up going two under the last five and only going to three over on number 12 instead of four over. So, you know, so actually for the last six holes, he was two under par and neither of them on the par five. So it was Mm. a very curious round of golf. And if he had just made a few putts, uh, it would have been it could have been a two under round easy. And I look for him to play really well on Friday. 
I think I think it you know for a lot of people who bet on him, for example, I'll bet we're thinking halfway through his round. You know, I should have let Tiger get one major championship under his belt this year before I bet on him. And then, of course, Tiger does Tiger-esque things and puts himself in a position where if he has a great round tomorrow, unless Spieth goes crazy again, he's right back in the golf tournament. You know, it's, it's yeah. not a lot of yeah. shots. So it was a curious round, but I think he got the the bugs out of his system. I think he got uh, the butterflies out of his tummy to a large extent because you want to feel some, but you don't want to feel a lot. And I think he's ready to play some really good golf, and I expect him to play a super-duper round tomorrow. Yeah, I I agree. I think, you know, Tiger surprises everybody. Um, You know, one minute you think that, like you said, you know, partway through the round, you think that that's going to be it and and the weekend's done, and then he'll pull, you know, something out of his, his hat and uh, and surprise everybody um we'll get back to tiger in a little bit but i want to talk to you about some other things uh and then we'll we'll continue on you've obviously peter have had i mean the laundry list of people that you've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, over the years is is i'm sure miles long i want to ask you who was one of your best interviews in your opinion who do you did you feel that the interview was just your best it was maybe the easiest um, you just really, everything just sort of gelled. Who was, who was that? Well, I got to tell you, you know, I did 1300, <laughs> uh, live television shows when I was at the golf channel, just, just as an example. And of the 1300, mm-hmm. I felt that way about 1298. I felt that we had done 1298 absolutely pristine shows where I literally wouldn't have changed Anything that happened, I never stumbled over a word. I never asked the wrong follow-up. I never had the wrong reaction. Right. I never asked the wrong question. These were designed to be, from my point of view, unlike anything else, to be a series of one-hour mm-hmm. theatrical performances. And the the way that I would structure the show before the show began and the things that I would do to get ready for the show combined to allow us to put on really an unbroken series of basically perfect shows. There were two that I regretted with Tim Fincham and Arnold Palmer, and they weren't perfect shows. Mm. But So of the 1,298, I would say that, you know, in terms of ones that are particularly memorable – because we had a saying, you know, not all golfers are interesting people. You know, it's not like be, be right. having Johnny <laughs> Johnny Carson's job and you've got Don Rickles coming on. You don't have to do anything. I mean, I remember <laughs> once once when Rodney, Dan- Rodney Dangerfield was on Carson's show and he sat down and Johnny said, right. hello, Rodney. And then Rodney did seven, eight, nine minutes unbroken. And Johnny never got a word in, and nor would he be stupid enough to say anything. The guy's on a roll, and it's all prepared. <laughs> and then Johnny, after nine minutes, said to him, well, it's nice to see you, Rodney. How are you? I didn't have that luxury. I didn't have people like that on the show. I had to figure out which personality that I had the choice of p- turning myself into to be able to be the best host for each guest each week, to be able to pull out of them the things that I wanted. And I knew that if I did little sh- did little things with my personality and the way that I handled each individual show, that I would be able to do that. It's just a form of acting, okay? So right. the, one of the great, great shows was, was Gene Sarazen. And 
Well, I, I lost my turn of thought for a second. The, the, the punchline was that because so many golfers are not by nature particularly interesting people, you know, I would say to my producer, Lee Siegel, who do we have this week? And he would say so-and-so. And I said, man, I mean, you know, that, you know, he's not very interesting. And Lee would look at me, <laughs> Lee would look at me and go, don't worry, you'll, you'll make him interesting. And, and we made them all interesting. And, you know, one who was particularly fascinating was Gene Sarazen. And Gene, at the time that we did the show, was 95, and he lived to be 97. And he was born in 1902, the same year as Bobby Jones. And he got married in 1925, the same year to Bobby as Bobby Jones. And in 1922, Gene won the U.S. Open as a 20-year-old, and Jones as a 20-year-old finished second. And they were obviously therefore contemporaries, and they were friends, and they were rivals, even though Jones, you know, certainly by Sarazen's admission, eclipsed anything that Gene did over the course of his career, which was a pretty heady career. And so Sarazen and I get together to do this show, and it was one of the two or three that we didn't do in the studio. We we did Jack once at his house in late 96, and this one with Sarazen was in 97, and it was up at Chateau Alain, the resort north of Atlanta, and he was affiliated with the resort. And I uh, knew a lot about Gene, and I had actually played golf with Gene quite accidentally in 1972 when I was 20 years old and a member at La Costa in San Diego, Gene Sarazen and Reggie Jackson showed up to play golf and uh, they came and over to me, I was hitting balls or something and they said, hey, you want to play with Reggie Jackson and Gene Sarazen? I said, yeah. So it turned out that Reggie and I found out on the third hole that we were both dating the same girl um, who happened to be running the oh. gift shop. And then I and I said to him, why don't the three of us go out for dinner? And it took me a while to convince him. And actually, we ultimately did and had a great time. And we both did continue to date her. And at that point, when I was 20 years old, I was already deep, deep into golf history. I'd been reading since I was 13 or 14. And I knew Gene Sarah. I knew everything there was to know about Gene Sarah's. And then, and then all those many, uh, 25 years later, when I actually interviewed him on television. And so Gene and I played together, and I knew so much about him. And, you know, golf wasn't as popular a game, certainly at that time in the early 70s, as it is today in terms of the way that it right. spread in terms of being international. At that time, you had Gary Player. Now you have players from all over the world. You know, it was just a different time, and people didn't really go to golf tournaments in those days. I, I went to so many, and there was nobody there. And so Gene and I played in 1972, and... I remember he shot par, and he was 70 years old. He had just turned 70 uh, that February, and uh, we had a great time, and I peppered him with questions. And so 25 years goes by, and now I'm going to interview him on television. And uh, I didn't even bring up the fact uh, that we had played golf before because he'd played with 8 million people, and he would have said, yes, I remember if he didn't remember. And so here's one of the stories he told us. He told me that in the mid-1920s, when he lived in Harrison, New York, which was about a 40-minute train ride into New York City with several stops along the way, he used to take the train from Harrison into New York City to see his manager and to do other things in the city where he had many friends. One of the stops on the way from Harrison to New York City then and now on the same train line was Pelham. And Gene figured out that at Pelham, if he took the one that got to Pelham at 1.15 after he'd already gotten on the train in Harrison, 
that the girls who were made up the Ziegfeld Follies showgirls were all getting on the train <laughs> because their housing was all paid for in Pelham. They would get on the 115 to go into the city and have rehearsal and then do the show that night. So Gene started taking intentionally, without needing to go into the city, the train that pulled into Pelham at 115. <laughs> and there was a particular blonde that, in his words, wouldn't give him a tumble. And he said, I tried so hard. And he said, and I looked as good as I could. And, you know, and he said, and I got off the place that as soon as the train pulled in, I got off so I could talk to her. She got in and she just wouldn't give me the time of day. And so he said, 60 years goes by. Now it's 1985. And he said he's playing in the Bob Hope tournament as a celebrity. And at that point, he's 83 years old. And a man comes up to him and mm -hmm. says that there's a woman who would like to meet him. And Gene Sarazen said, what would a woman want with an old man like me? And the fellow said, well, she insisted on meeting you. And so they left the final green, and they went up into a special area behind the green that was reserved for VIPs. And he says hello to a blonde woman who wanted to meet him. And she said to him, Mr. Sarazen, do you recognize me? And Gene said, well, I looked her over, and he said, I didn't recognize her, and she was still a beautiful woman, even though she was, she was getting older like me. And she said, well, I want you to know that I'm the blonde that you used to flirt with on the train tracks in Pelham in 1925 <laughs> when I was a Ziegfeld Folly showgirl, and I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Mrs. Bob Hope. And he did that. For, wow. an, for an for an hour, he did it for an hour. Now, one of the one of the secrets to the success of those shows was, I always knew in advance what the answers to the questions were going to be, and since I always knew what the answers right. were going to be, I could time out the hour in my head. I knew how long my question would be. I knew how long the answer would be. So I knew how many questions I could get in over the hour because I knew how it would time out. And unlike a Broadway play where you have rehearsals, there was no rehearsal. And I didn't tell the other person they had to right. give me the answers that I expected them to. But I knew how to finesse the situation. And in Gene's case, it was one of the very rare situations where I didn't know everything and where I was actually sort of listening to where he was, and instead of either following up or segueing into my next topic, I found myself asking more about a particular incident, more than I normally would, and out of that came the story about Mrs. Bob Hope. So he was just, you know, one of the all-time <laughs> fantastic guests. And I'll tell you who else was a great guest was Tiger Woods. You know, uh, the Tiger right. Woods that I know is so completely different from the Tiger Woods that has that the media has, seems to have been presented with. I know Tiger completely, completely, sure. completely differently. I had Tiger on television for his for, first long-form interview when he was 20 years old. He was just 20 years old, and he had just turned pro in, the, in that previous October. And this was December, just before his 21st birthday. And we did 90 minutes together. 
And we had a fantastic time. And then we watched, there was a Stanford basketball game where he went to school on TV when we finished the show. Mm -hmm. So I sat with him and his agent, and we watched the end of the game. His agent pretended to root for Stanford, and Tiger kept looking at me like, I wish he would (laughs) knock it off because I know he's just, you know, doing it to blow smoke at me. Right. And then then Tiger (laughs) said to me, he said, do you know how to get Masters highlights? And I said, you mean like the tapes? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, could we like watch one if I picked a year? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said to his agent, look, he said, he said, Peter, can you can you drop drop me off at my house? And I said, absolutely. So he dismissed his agent, Hughes Norton, who was later canned until um, Mark Steinberg right. became his agent. And Tiger and I went into this tiny little room which were really just little edit bays, if you will, where someone could sit and watch a show through very sophisticated technology, even for the time, and be able to do editing Mm -hmm. on it. So we would just put the tape in, and I would just put play, push play, and then Tiger and I would sit, and we would watch a master's highlight. Well, we got into the habit of doing that. He would call over to the studio, and he would tell my producer that, you know, he was going to come when my show was over, and he would tell my producer what show he wanted to watch. And then Tiger would wait till my guest left, and he would pull up, and sometimes I'd have to go out and get him. And I would bring him inside, and we would go watch a show. And then he started to get into the habit of walking around the building of the Golf Channel. And this was now early 1997, before even won the, the first Masters that he would that April, of course, by a dozen shots. And uh, it's amazing to think that we're watching him play today and people are rooting for him to do it again. And here it is 21 years later, just a you know, full double of how old he was at the time when he did it the first time. He was 21, he's 42. And then he would go around and all of the girls who were still working because um, at a, a, a television station, there were people who worked later into the evening doing a whole host of things, depending on the department you're in. And sure. Tiger would work, work his way around the building and find the prettiest girl and take her out for a drink. <laughs> and, and hopefully for him, it all worked out. I mean, he was 21. He was single. He had no obligations. Girls were already crazy about him. He was very, very handsome. And he had a great open yeah. personality at the time. And it's so different than the Tiger that I've seen over the years since we've drifted apart quite a bit. I mean, we had a really good visit, but it was 10 years ago at the U.S. Open at Torrey. And when we walked for a few minutes together, I could hear bone on bone in his left leg. It was so grotesque where he had the mm. double fracture that finally was repaired. And so Tiger right. was an incredible guest. He would show up anytime I asked. Uh, one time I had Butch on, and I said, Butch, where is he? And he said, he's, I think he's at McDonald's. And I said, tell him to eat it in the car and come on over. And it was like quarter to eight, and the shows were always <laughs> live at eight. And Tiger came over, and he, like, threw right. the wrapper, wrapper away. And he got in the chair, and they put a little makeup on him. And I thought of how I wanted to open the show because I'd already written it in my head. But now with Tiger, I'm doing a new show. And this was the Monday after the 2000 Masters that he didn't win. But he had the low score over the weekend, right. 30, 36 holes. So this is the next, the, the day after that tournament. This is the Monday night. 
Now, starting two months later in June, he would then go ahead and win the Slam. He would win the U.S. Open. He would win the British Open. He would win the PGA. Then he would win the Players' Championship in March, and then he would win the Masters the following April to hold the five most important titles at the same time. So he comes in just before then, and just after the last major he wouldn't win for the next four, and just talked about his golf swing for a full hour. Actually, that show's on my website, peterkessler.com. I've got that show and then a great Arnold show mm-hmm. on there. And the one with Tiger is if you see him and you watch even five minutes of that show, you say, I've never seen him like that. He was a completely different person. He was so giving and so open and so easy, and he would laugh, and, and Butch was fantastic. So Tiger, you know, to go back to your original question of great guests, great shows, he was great television every time. We did seven, eight, nine shows, something like that, and he couldn't have been more fantastic. And he was wonderful to me away from the Golf Channel. If I would see him somewhere, he was great. He, we ran into each other by accident at, at Grand Cypress, uh, a resort here in Orlando, and I was actually taking a lesson, and he was filming a commercial, and I finished my lesson, and I got in my cart, and I see they're filming a commercial, so I go over to see who it is, and it's Tiger. And so they're they're doing stuff to set up props for the next scene. And I go over, and he gives me a huge hello. And actually, this was after um, that Masters in 2000. Now that I think about, you know, it was the two that right after the 2001 Masters, and he completes the Slam, and we talk about the Slam, and we talk about the Slam, and then he says to me, and this is just after the Masters in 2001 that he would win, and he said, "How come you left early on Friday?" And I said, how come I left where early on Friday? And he said, well, when I was playing the seventh hole on Friday at the Masters, he said, he said you were with me. He said, you followed me all day Thursday. And then he said, you followed me the first seven holes on Friday. And then he said, then you didn't follow me the rest of the round. And I said, how in the world would you possibly know that? And he said, well, you were wearing a red shirt and you were wearing navy pants and you had on white shoes that I think were light golf shoes. And he said, and the last time I saw you, you were walking up just out, just inside the ropes, up, uh, just outside the ropes, where at the Masters you can't go inside the ropes if you're with media. Other tournaments he could see me easily and talk to me or whatever, or give me a look or a slap against hmm. the hand. So he, he was just, I just found him to be, I, I had an incredible time with him. Yeah, you know, and, and that was something that they always talked about Arnold Arnold Palmer as well, you know, about his personality. You know, it was always very engaging with, with you know, obviously people in the media, but uh, particularly with the fans. And that was something that I think that Tiger, um, a lot of times the media doesn't always, uh, I think, get it right. I want to ask you something, Peter, um, before we go on about your game. You, you mentioned, you know, you were taking a lesson uh, before you spoke with Tiger and that. Describe your game. How do you feel your game is, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of it? Well, from I became a decent player probably in my early 20s and got down to like a 4 or 5, and and I was about that from, oh, 23 or 4 years old until I was in my early 40s and when the Golf Channel started. When the Golf Channel started, I was actually a legit 2 I played the back tees at uh, the Blue Monster with Jim McLean and Bobby Mercer, who was, of course, with the Yankees, and shot 75. I could shoot. I was a I was a steady 75 shooter. I didn't usually shoot better. I didn't usually shoot much worse either. I was pretty pretty steady in the mid 70s, and 
Then the Golf Channel started. And six months after it started, I started to host a new show called Golf Channel Academy Live. And we had a teacher on every week right. of the year. So we had 50 teachers on the first year. And after that first year, I could not break 100. I went from 75 to I cannot make contact. <laughs> I had so much information. And I had probably had the same swing thought for five or six years at that point. And I just thought I had one swing thought, and it worked every single time, basically. You shoot 75, you have to have a good swing thought. And, uh, and so then my game sure. fell into dis- disrepair. But by the late 90s, it, 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 it was back in shape, and I was playing a lot of golf with Arnold at that time. And, and I got back down to about a six from the two. Six was about as good as I got after that show started. And, and so I played a lot of golf with Arnold over at Bay Hill, and I played a lot of golf with him up in Latrobe. And, and we watched the OJ trial together. And, you know, we were sitting and watching the trial, and he said to me, you know, he said, do you remember the Hertz commercials I did with OJ? And I said, sure. And he said, you know, he said he was impossible to work with. He said, he said if somebody made the slightest little error, like the the the, the wrong prop was in the right place or the right prop was in the wrong place, he said his anger was so disproportionate to the event. He said, and it would get, and he said yeah. in his face, even though he was a black man. He, there was actually red came to his cheeks. He would get so angry, and he said, "He said I believe that he could kill somebody." And he said, and "I believe he killed those two people." And so when I played, when I was playing wow. with Arnold at that time, I was about a six and playing some good golf, and I shot a lot of seventy fives and sixes for Arnold's when we were partners. And one day uh, I drove out with him to Southern Dunes, which is about forty minutes from where we li- where he lived and where I lived. We lived about twenty minutes apart, and. We drove out one day with his caddy, and I used he used to play for money, and and I didn't play for the money. I just played as his partner, and and I was a good six for him. And remember, we went out to Southern Dunes, and uh, we uh, he won eighteen hundred dollars, and I shot like seventy four or five for him, and helped a lot of holes. And I said, I uh, <laughs> I said I think I should get a little cut here, and he said, Oh, when did you turn pro? <laughs> And then the same damn thing happened to me with another player. I went over to play in 2002 to the Dunhill Links in St. Andrews, Scotland. And it's like the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. You play the old course, Kings, Barnes, and Carnoustie on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then there's 168 teams, 168 two-man teams, an amateur and a pro. The low 20 teams out of 168, the low 20 two-man teams, get to make the 54-hole cut on Saturday night, and those 22-man teams get to play Sunday at the old course. So I go over as a six, and my partner is Thomas LeVay. And I shoot 75 at the old course. Then I shot 79 at Carnoustie, which was really actually a really good round of golf. And then I shot 75 at Kings Barnes on the Saturday, and I was a six. So I helped us 8 million holes, and LeVay missed the cut individually because it's low 55 individual plus the 20 teams and he missed the cut but we made the cut and we were the only team of two part of two players where the pro missed the cut individually but made the cut as a team so i was pretty proud and i made and then i shot 75 again on the sunday 
and Colin Montgomery played right in front of us and made seven birdies in a row starting on the fifth hole. We watched make seven birdies in a row. It was crazy. And it was 72 degrees and sunny and a one-club win. It was, like, so perfect the whole week. I shoot 75 again on the Sunday. So I had three 75s and a 79, and I win LeVay $25,000. So I said to him after the round, Mm. I just won you $25,000. And I said, how about a cut? And he said the same damn thing. He said, when did you turn pro? (laughs) And so... Every time I saw him after that, I would say to him, have you reconsidered? He said, only if you've turned professional. And uh, I said, my pro debut is a couple of weeks away. So, you know, I had some, I, you know, I played golf with so many people. I, you know, had wonderful experiences playing golf with, with Sean Connery. And he was the one who sort of sat me down and, and, and told me all the tricks that I had figured out about how you get ready to do a performance on a TV show. He figured out everything that I had done. He figured out how I prepared. He knew that I knew what the answers would be and how long they would be. He said it's the only way you could have timed out the show. I mean, he went into great, great detail. And, you know, he said to me, you're not an interviewer. Hmm. He said, said, you're an actor. He said, you're a great actor. And he said, you happen to be a golf savant, and it's a perfect fit. He said, but... He said, you're not an investigative journalist. He said, you, you put on performances. And he said, and you change your personality every week. And he said, and when I'm not home on Mondays, I tape the show. So I was told not to, I got invited to play with him for a whole week in a tournament. And the guy who invited me, who was also in the group, said, before I, I showed up, he said, the one thing you can't do is bring up James Bond. He doesn't like to talk about James Bond at all, so just don't bring it up. And I said, no problem. But when Sean and I first met on the first day of this tournament, we were the only two people in the coffee room at about 7.50 a.m. And so I was there, and Sean walked in, and he walks over, and he tells me he's my biggest fan. And I looked at him like, this is completely Hmm. surreal. And so for 20 minutes, he told me all about me, and he talked about the shows and the whole thing, and talked about acting, and he talked about gifts and how they worked, and I totally knew what he was talking about. And so when that ended, I thought, look, this is like a mutual respect deal now, and so I'm going to definitely feel free to ask him anything I want. So we we go to play our practice round, and he and I are in the same cart, and we hit our tee shots, and he was a really good 18, by the way, at a really good short game. <clears throat> and we get in the cart, and I said, so, double O, I said, who was the hottest Bond chick of them all? And that's where we started. And, you know, I knew I was taking a s- very small risk at that point because of what had just happened. And he turned to me, and he said, Ursula Andrus. And then he went into it for 15 minutes. And so about 20 minutes later... I, I'm in the cart with him, and the other cart pulls up, and I lean, and I didn't realize the other cart was there, and I turned to Sean, and I went, hey, double O, and I started to ask him a question, and I noticed the other cart, and I see my host, and he has turned ashen because he heard me call Sean, hey, double O, and Sean right. looked at him, Sean looked at me, and he looked over at our host, and he said, he's with me. And so we just had the best, 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 best time. And he was a really good 18. He he couldn't hit it very far. He was 71 or two years old because I played two years. Yes, he would have been 71 and 72. And the tournament goes on all week with one off day in the middle. 
think he was 18. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever shot over 90. He could get around the greens in regulation within 30 yards, within 40 yards. He couldn't quite get there. But he was a really good pitcher of the ball. From 30 and 40 yards, he was always like 12 feet or 14 feet. And sometimes he was 5 feet. But he was never 30 feet. And he never bladed one. And he never chunked one. And he never hit one soft, short, and high. And he never used a lob wedge. He always used a sand wedge for everything around the greens, which is something that I do. And I know some good players who don't use a lob wedge either. But And I'm not a good player anymore. But... But right. he was so good with the sandwich. So he never left himself a lot of stuff, and he made a lot of really easy bogeys, which were bogeys for net pars because he was an 18. So we won net and gross both years for both tournaments. It was fantastic. Wow. What a great, great story. Um, Peter, do you have a favorite uh, course that you like to play? Is there any? I mean, you've had obviously the pleasure of playing a lot of different courses around the world, but is there one that – that's special to you that, that for some reason you just really enjoy playing that particular golf course? Well, there, there, there's a couple that, that, that definitely come to mind. I, my current favorite is Friar's Head. Friar's Head is on sort of the north shore out near the end of Long Island. It's not real close to Shinnecock or Maidstone. It's a little ways away, and it was built by Coor and Crenshaw for a guy by the name of Ken Baxt. B-A-K-S-T. And Kenny won the mid-amateur in 1997. And in 1998, I got to host the mid-amateur dinner. And so Kenny was a defending champion, and we got to know each other. And a few years ago, I saw him again because I hosted a dinner for all of the former mid-am champs in one place at one time and gave a little speech about each one of their rounds that had been their their, their final round in winning the mid-am. And so Kenny and I spent some time there. And so, you know, I, I had heard about Friars Head, but I didn't realize that Ken owned the golf course. And so I called Scotty Sayers, who's Ben Crenshaw's agent and lawyer and friend of 30, 40 years. And I've known Scotty for a long time and I've known Ben for a long time. And I said to Scotty, I keep hearing all this stuff about Friar's Head, and uh, can I go play it? And he said, yeah. He said, your friend owns it. I said, who? He said, Ken Bask. I said, Ken Bask? He said, yes. So I called Kenny, and my 30-year-old son, who's starting to become a golf historian, uh, lives in New York. And so he invited uh, my son Kevin and I, who just turned 30 on Bobby Jones's birthday, and uh, my wife's birthday is also Bobby Jones's birthday, so we, we got a lot of important stuff going on. And hmm. so Kevin and I went out and played Friars Head. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. First of all, the the only way you know it's a course, it's the it's uh, of any course I've ever played that's private where it has like a secret entrance. This is the most secret. It just right. has an old an old fashioned mailbox with the red flag on it sitting at the end of a of what looks like a little driveway and it just has the street number on it and it doesn't say anything, but that's the course and you turn in and then all of a sudden it opens up into this road and it's the most unbelievable thing. Every hole is so unbelievable. It just takes your breath away. And the way they have the teeing ground, you can sort of like walk to anywhere on the teeing ground you want and put your tee in the ground 
to to pick a length of hole that's appropriate for the skill that you do or don't have. And so every hole you're playing from the right distance where it's not asking too much on your second shot, on a par four, and so forth. And the thing is rolling and dunes, and it looks so much like Cypress Point, which I'm so crazy about. And so we played there uh, several times, and the last time that I wrote to Ken after we played last October – I said to him, uh, a a day at Friar's Head, dash, sheer bliss. And when he wrote me back, he said he liked Hmm. the phrase so much that he copyrighted it, a day at Friar's Head, dash, sheer bliss. (laughs) And so Friar's Head is really right at the top of my list, but Pine Valley is at the top of my list too. It's the place where I had the best ball striking round I ever had. In 1985, I was living in Rye, New York, very close to Gene Sarazen's Harrison. As a matter of fact, it's the next stop on the train because it's the next town. And uh, I lived in Rye, and I get a phone call at 1 in the morning from a guy who's now down at Pine Valley, a friend of mine, and he said, hey, our 12th guy didn't show up. He said, if you can get down here and leave like in a little while, we'll leave one of the rooms open for you, and we're going to have breakfast at 7 and play at 8. And I said, I'm on my way. So I drove down to Pine Valley, and I got there about a quarter to five in the morning, and then I went into the what was basically a dorm and found an empty room and started looking at the golf magazine, and it had the instructional showing Hogan's famous pane of glass and that you want to make sure that your arm swing is under this imaginary pane of glass that goes from your shoulders to the golf ball on a, on a 45-degree angle, basically. And so I thought, there's a good swing thought, because I hadn't been playing very well. And we started on the 10th hole at Pine Valley, which is a wonderful par 3, and I remember we didn't hit balls first, and since it was an 8-iron was the first shot, and I just hit the best, 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 best 8-iron right next to the hole, just thinking about the pane of glass. And I went on to hit 16 greens in regulation. I missed hole number 16. I missed the 16th green itself by a yard. And then when we made the turn, I bladed it over number one and made double bogey and then hit the numbers two through nine and hit all the rest of the greens. And I shot 75, which was a really good score at Pine Valley, and I was probably a five or six or something at the time, so it was a particularly good score. But it was definitely the best ball striking round that that I ever had. And uh, so I remember the round vividly, and I remember the course so fondly, and I know the greens are probably much, much faster now than they were at that time. But Friar's Head would be up there, and Pine Valley would be up there, and Cypress Point. Um, I was able to play there at the end of last June when I was out in California for an outing, and I played with a good friend of mine, and we uh, teed off at 7.15 in the morning. We were the first twosome, and we played 18 at Cypress Point. I think I shot 80 or 81. I didn't break 80 because you, you would remember that, but I knew it was, but it was still a good score, and, and I didn't have any three putts, and I didn't make any doubles. I remember that. And uh, and that's not easy to do at, at Cypress Point, especially the the no three putting. And then we were supposed to drive up and play the Olympic Club. And this guy's 20 years younger than I am. And all of a sudden he's making excuses and he doesn't want to play and he's whining and he wants to go go back <laughs> right. to the hotel because he left something. 
So we get up to Olympic Club two hours later, and he drops me off, and I just played the first eight holes by myself in a cart, not one person on the golf course, the most beautiful day you can imagine, and the eighth hole finishes at the clubhouse at Olympic, and uh, so he met me there, and, and then he wanted to go to dinner immediately and go to sleep. I never, I still haven't figured it out a year later. And uh, But, yes, yeah, Cypress Point would, would, would be way up there. Um, you know, there's so many great courses in the, in the, in Westchester County, New York. I mean, I, I lived 10 minutes from winged foot and of course, Bobby Jones, as we mentioned, won the open there in 1929 and Billy Casper right. won it there and, you know, and, and Fuzzy Zeller won at winged foot. And so, you know, it's, it's just an absolutely incredible golf course and it's an incredible complex because, it has two 18-hole courses, the West Course and the East Course. The West Course is the famous one for the U.S. Open, but the East Course, they've played the U.S. Senior Open, they played the Women's Open, they've played the Amateur. I mean, it's a ridiculously great golf course, and yet it's quite different from the West Course. It's a little bit more manageable into the greens. The West Course asks you to hit a lot of really long shots into very well-guarded greens, but I think back fondly on oh certainly a hundred rounds at winged foot in the 15 years that i lived nearby where i played all 36 holes and you would have a caddy and you would walk and those are some of the most fantastic experiences of my life and uh, i think that that's the best 36 hole complex that i've ever been to and of course at that time they didn't have band and dunes you know which has a zillion great golf courses now but winged foot was a very very special place to me and um, I, I had rounds with some incredible people there, no, nobody particularly well-known or anything like that, but I had a lot of friends who lived nearby. And um, so Winged Foot and Friars Head and Cypress Point and Pine Valley, and I sure do love the old course. I've played it now maybe 20 or 25 times, and I learned to fall in love with it. And there's so much about it that's incredible, particularly starting with the 11th hole and then working your way back towards town when you get to the 12th tee. It's the, the, the color of the brick on the building in St. Andrews at a certain time late in the afternoon before the sun goes down turns the color of the, of the bricks all pink on all of the buildings, and it almost shimmers. You know, and you contrast that with the incredible hmm. color of the green of the grass which, like Augusta National, is its own green. The old course has its own green color that I've never seen anywhere else. And so it's an extraordinary place as you work your way, particularly back into town. The holes are harder. They're, they're more fun. They're tougher. It's into the wind. And you slowly you are finding yourself walking into the center of a town and a sleepy little town. And so that that's high on my list, too. Wow. Um you know that it, it just it's interesting to, to just to listen to you talk about some of the different courses that you've played and and you know the memories that you to this day still hold true. Um, it, it's it's fascinating to listen to you talk about some of these great courses that you've played. I want to ask you something though, Peter. Um, you know, because you, you mentioned Palmer and, and Nicholas and, and Player. You know, in their day, they were considered the big three. Do we have a big three today? And if so, who would they be in your mind? No, this is a whole different deal. This is a very, very unusual time. You know, if you go back, say, to the 1890s, you had three guys who were 
the first great triumvirate of golf. You had Harry Varden and James Braid and J.H. Taylor. And Taylor and Braid each won five British Opens, and Harry Varden won six British Opens, which is as many as anybody's ever won. Uh, Tom Watson has has five British Opens. And so you had three great players at a time where there weren't a lot of great players, but these were the three best. And then after World War One, and their time had passed, you then had during the 1920s and, and early 1930s another triumvirate. You had Jones and Hagen and Sarazen. Now, Jones was the best player of the three, but you had three terrific players, and Sarazen won seven major championships, and Hagen won 11 major championships, and Jones won 13 major championships. And Varden, by the way, also won a U.S. Open in, in 1900 to, to have seven Open championships between U.S. and, and British. And so then you had hmm. another triumvirate after that. It was crazy. You had Byron Nelson and Sam Snead and Ben Hogan, another triumvirate. And then what happens after that? Another triumvirate. You've got Nicholas, and you've got Palmer, and you've got Player, even though Nicholas, of course, as in the case of each of the triumvirates, there was one player who was a little bit more dominant. And, of course, among those three, it was Jack. Then things changed, because Jack, Arnold, was still relevant in the early 70s, but but the big days were behind him. Player still played well, won... You know, the, the Masters in 74, and the Masters in 78, and the British Open in 74. And so he stayed relevant and winning major championships. But then there was a new group of guys to take on. You know, All of a sudden, you had Lee Trevino, who would win six major championships. And then as Gary Player faded a little bit out of the picture after 78, Jack hung in and won the U.S. Open and <clears> the PGA in 80. And then at that, so at that point now, he's beating Seve, and he's, and he's beating Ben Crenshaw. And and he beat Tom Weiskopf, and so what was and then Watson, you know, became the best player from '77 really through '83, '84. But you had it, you had a situation where you went from great triumvirates forever to Jack taking on a series of guys, most notably Lee Trevino and then Tom Watson, and then you had this odd period where you had. A host of terrific players. You had Greg Norman, you had Nick Price, you had Tom Kite, you right. had Curtis Strange, and you had Nick Faldo, and Seve was still playing some decent golf into the late 80s. But even though Norman was the number one player for most of a 10-year period, because he only won two majors, he wasn't really a, the dominant player because... While Greg was winning two major championships, Nick Faldo was winning six, three times as many. And so you didn't have one guy who stood out, and you didn't have just three guys. It was a revolving cast. And then, of course, we know about Tiger, which was like the the golden period of Jack Nicklaus, where nobody could compete with Tiger. Now we have a completely different situation. We have a host of guys who are playing, in my view, musical chairs. You know, you've got Rory and Dustin right, and Jason right. Day and Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas. Spieth. I mean, it, it's a yeah. big group of guys. And now, with Phil playing good again, he's in the mix. And mm-hmm. with Tiger looking like he's going to play some decent golf, he's in the mix. 
And so you, what you have is a bit of musical chairs. The reason why it's musical chairs and why you can't say there's just three guys because there's not just three guys is because the hardest right. thing to do, the hardest thing to do in golf <clears throat> is to win a whole bunch of major championships. Look at the 19, 1970 through 1980. That's 44 major championships. Of the 44, mm. Jack won 10. 10 out of 44 from 70 through 80. Think about that. 10 out of 44. Mm-hmm. He also finished second eight times. So he had 18 firsts or seconds out of 44 major championships from 1970 through 1980. It means two things. It means, one, he knew how to win major championships, which is the hardest thing to do. But the second hardest thing to do is to be consistently in position to win them. And Nicholas did that, and Jones Hmm. did that, and Hogan did that, and Tiger did that. But now we don't have anybody who does that. We don't have a player or one or two players that you can pretty much count on being part of the proceedings on a Sunday afternoon in a major championship because being consistent is a really hard thing to do. Think of Phil Mickelson's career. It's been built on a series of Mm -hmm. two, three, or four good weeks a year and a whole lot of iffy weeks, a whole lot of top 25s, top 15, 15 through 25th place, a lot of that stuff for Phil over the course of his career if you look at the data points on the graph. So Phil has been particularly inconsistent. Mm -hmm. That's why he and Tiger didn't have lots of head-to-head matchups in major championships because Tiger was always there and Phil was there on occasion and BJ was there on occasion and Ernie Els was there on occasion. And so now you don't have anybody that you can rely on to be there most of the time. Now, you know, Jordan Spieth's trying to make a pretty good case for being that guy and that's one of the reasons why the first major championship of this year with so many guys uh, being uh, uh, easy to tab as a contender, and we saw after the first round that you have most of the guys that you thought would contend ultimately are already contending in the first round, which is a dream scenario for everybody because that's what you root for. And it so rarely happens. You know, Mm -hmm. you had the year that Spieth won the Masters, It was over at lunchtime on the Friday because he started 64-66 and nobody got a sniff of him the rest of the week. And so because you don't have anybody who can win a lot of majors right now, you know, now Jordan's still young and Rory is still young, but Rory's got, you know, you look at history and most of the guys who've won multiple majors tend to win most of them by the time they're 35. You know, Arnold was done then, Watson was done then, lots of guys were done then. Very few guys won, won in their 40s, like Jack and like Gary Player. And so mm-hmm. right now we're going to find out who maybe is good enough to be consistently in contention to be able to close multiple majors beyond what they have now. And I think Jordan's got a shot at that, and I think that Justin Thomas has got a shot at that. I don't like Dustin Johnson's chances. Dustin's 34. Right. At 34, he's got one major, and Tiger had 14. You don't start winning usually a lot of majors at 34. Now, 
you know, that's the one thing about today's no. fitness and health is that, you know, 35 is like maybe the old 30. And, you know, Dustin Johnson's a ridiculous athlete. I mean, he can do incredible things with his body. And so I think of him as a young 34. And so there's still time for him to add multiple majors. I don't see it happening. So I think that Justin has a chance to be that player. I think that Jordan Spieth has a chance to be that player. You know, and if Jordan should go on and have a brilliant round on the Friday at the Masters, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, open up some kind of an interesting lead, you know, that's going to say a lot about his resume and his credentials and, you know, his ability to perhaps go on and win, you know, a second Masters and a fourth major, and that would keep him on pace with Tiger, and that would keep him on pace with Jack Nicklaus. So if I had to pick a player for you who has the potential to be consistently um, in contention in majors and close them, Jordan would be that pick. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree from what I've seen. Um, Peter, we're, we're getting to the close here, unfortunately, I hate to say, um, just when things were warming up. But I want you to take just a couple of minutes, if you can, because we're literally on the, on the, on the cusp of, of closing off. And for those listeners that are tuning in that maybe have never they're not golfers by, by nature. Um, maybe they don't watch a lot of golf. What would you want them if they have an opportunity to watch the Masters this weekend? What do you want them to take away from it? I think that what they will take away from it without my even doing any prodding or suggesting is that it's very special. It's very special in so many ways. You know, it's the only men's major championship that's played at the same venue every year. And people get used to the holes on television watching them. And because it's the first major of the year and because now spring has begun, and it's always spring, it seems like, at the Masters in April. And it's important (laughs) important to know that, you know, this was once the largest nursery in the South, which started at the end of the Civil War. There were 900 varieties of apples on this property. There were 1,300 varieties of pears. I know that sounds impossible, but it's true. It's where the azalea started its life in the south. So the property, when Jones first saw saw it in 1930 after he won the Grand Slam and retired from competition – Because the property is built on a hill, Jones was able to walk around the manor house and look down, being the operative word, down upon the property because it's on the side of a hill. And he could see holes that we play today, 12 and 11 and 13. You could see them. Jones could, in his mind's eye, standing in front of the back of the manor house looking down upon the property. There's no other golf course like it in terms of its beauty. And you don't want to think about, you know, the money that they, that they spent and how do they do that and how do they manufacture sure. it. It's like sausage. I don't want to know how the sausage is made. I just want to taste it. And so take in the beauty. Take in the fact that everybody who wins there gets to come back again and hang out and be at the champion's dinner and play in the par three contest and that there's a lot of family and friends who follow the players. And this is an important, important tournament to win, maybe the most important of them all, because you get to go home every year to Augusta National as a champion, every single April when the Masters begin. So take in the beauty of the golf course. Take in the fact that there are elevation changes and try to look for those 
those changes so you can appreciate that it's been built on the side of a hill and take note of the fact that the people who start to work their way to the top of the leaderboard are going to ultimately be identified by Sunday as the true contenders, no pretenders on Sunday afternoon. So the best players in the world will be the ones from whom uh, the champion is going to be chosen. Well said. Uh, Perfect. Well, Peter, I want to thank you uh, for giving me the honor to come back again on the show. And um, you have an open invitation to come back anytime you want. Um, I enjoy listening to, um, yeah, you just have a wealth of of knowledge about the game and and a very interesting perspective. You know, we we often hear sometimes, you know, when we watch some of the the sports analysts and, and other announcers on TV and it's, it's very analytical and it's very, um, a lot of diatraph to be quite honest. And it's very refreshing to hear. Um, there's obviously a lot of deep passion that you have about, uh, golf in general, not just about playing the game, but just about its history. And, and obviously, uh, understandably it's been a passion of yours for, for many, many decades. And, and I appreciate you sharing them with my audience this evening. So thank you, Peter, for, for honoring us, uh, with some great stories once again. Oh, you ask me such good questions, and you always get me going, and I'm always thrilled to be on the show, and it's (laughs) terrific, and you've got a great reputation, and I know people really enjoy being on and listening to the show, so I'm just, you know, very, very pleased that you would include me, and I'm happy to join you anytime you like. Well, thank you, Peter, and uh, much continued success, and and I may reach out a lot lot sooner than you think, because I enjoy listening to... uh, the many stories that you have to share, and I know you have thousands of them. And uh, as I said, you have an open invitation to come back anytime. If there's something that you want to share uh, some evening, uh, you know how to reach me, and, and by all means, we'll set it up. But uh, thank you very much once again, Peter, and, and enjoy the Masters this weekend. You too, and I look forward to seeing your swing. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a great You're evening. Welcome. All right, that was my very special guest this evening, Peter Kessler, uh, legendary golf announcer known as The Voice, and uh, uh, just a, a fantastic storyteller, just knows so much about the game, um, and uh, I'm very flattered and very honored that he has uh, agreed to come on the show and, and share some of that wealth of knowledge with my audience, and um, I, I appreciate it very much. And I want to thank, obviously, the Coach's Corner panel, Bill Abrams and Chuck Evans, for doing a great job as well on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. And I look forward to having those two come back again and and sharing some of their thoughts and and, uh, viewpoints about the game as well. And on that note, thank you to all of you listeners from around the world for faithfully tuning in each and every week to Golf Talk Live. And it's it's, uh, people like Bill and Chuck and, and of course, Peter. Uh, It's through all of their talented efforts that help to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. And it's, of course, all of you, the fans and listeners to the program, for faithfully tuning in that have helped to build it to what it is today. And it just keeps growing and growing each and every week. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, excuse me, for all of you. So enjoy, as Peter said, enjoy the Masters take in all of the beauty uh, of not just the golf course, but just the the aura, if you will, of Augusta National. Uh, Enjoy the Masters this weekend. Uh, win, lose, or draw, whether your player uh, wins or not, just enjoy the experience. And for those of you that have never played golf or maybe don't know a lot about the golf uh, game in general, implore you to watch the Masters this weekend, even if you only watch the Sunday round. If you don't want to watch all four rounds, um, that's fine. 
uh, well, three left now, but uh, watch the sunny round and just watch some incredible play and just, uh, again, take in the, the beauty of the surroundings. And on that note, I will be back next week with another great uh, Coach's Corner panel and another great guest, of course. And I look forward to you joining me each and every Thursday here on the blogtalkradio.com network here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.